following show is for informational purposes only. Individual situations may vary, and the information should be relied upon only when coordinated with individual professional advice. Welcome to Discovering Responsible Wealth. This is our monthly coaching call brought to us by the Institute of Responsible Wealth, and I'm your host, Frank Congelos. Our guest today is Weston Wellington, Vice President of Dimensional Fund Advisors. Weston's been in the financial service arena for over 40 years, and he's been an expert speaking about finances and working with advisors throughout all of the world, showing them how a science-based equilibrium strategy is the most reliable way to both accumulate and preserve wealth. He also explains why investors are unfamiliar with this approach and are likely not to hear from it from the typical you know, financial advisory sources. So, Weston, welcome to our show. It's a pleasure to have you with us today. Welcome. Good to be here. So, Weston, what exactly does dimensional mean or you mean by an equilibrium strategy as the best way to build and preserve wealth? I don't think most people have ever heard of that. And prior to me getting involved with dimensional and yourself, I've never heard of it. So maybe you could share with us a little bit about what that is. Sure. The equilibrium idea is that there are always two sides to any transaction, and their interests have to balance each other. If I buy a car, I have to be happy with the price I get, and the car dealer has to be happy with the price that he gets. Otherwise, no transaction would take place. In the stock or bond markets, both the buyers and the sellers of any security, they have to believe the price is fair, or again, no trades would take place. Let's look at the New York Stock Exchange. How many companies do we have on the New York Stock Exchange today? give or take a few, about 2,000. How many investors do we have out there? Way more than 2,000, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions. And they're all flipping through that list of 2,000 companies, hoping they can identify the very best, the most rewarding opportunities for themselves. But they're all competing with each other for these opportunities that might be there. They're all trying to research these companies carefully and figure out what their prospects are. In this competitive environment, the most likely outcome is that prices for all the companies, the terrific companies, the not-so-terrific companies, even the mediocre companies, they're going to be fair. Let's switch to football for a moment to illustrate this idea from a little different perspective. We have two NFL football teams, the Ravens and the Colts, and they are facing each other toward the end of the season. And the Ravens have won nine games so far that season, and they've lost only three. Pretty good. How about the Colts? Well, they have a perfect record. They've lost every single game. You can't get any worse. So first question, which of these two teams is more likely to win the game that day? That's not a trick question. The Ravens are more likely. They clearly have a much better record, and they won. They won 24 to 10. Now, here's the second question, the more important one for us as investors. Could we have made money easily from that insight that the Ravens are more likely to win the game that day? Well, we could have bet on the Ravens to win the game, so we did. Did we win the bet? No, we lost the bet. Because when we phoned in our bet to the bookie, he informed us the point spread was 17 points. Everybody else also knows the Colts are the likely losers. How do you persuade somebody? to bet on the Colts, the losing team, 
to win the game that day. You have to offer an incentive to adjust for the obvious matchup. In this case, the obvious loser being the Colts. In this case, the point spread is 17. That's what you have to provide when setting the odds to persuade somebody to bet on the Colts. So is it easy, at least sometimes, to figure out who the winning football team is going to be? Sure. Is it easy to make money from that insight? Not so easy. The stock market works the same way. Is it obvious that some companies have better prospects, they're better managed, they're faster growing, they're more profitable? Sure it is. Is it easy to make money from that insight? Not so easy because other investors are aware of these differences, and those differences are already reflected in the prices for these various securities. And I guess that's why they call it that equilibrium. That's equilibrium. So a great company doesn't assure us of a greater investment return, and as a result, we're probably better off investing in all the companies, the companies that appear to have the best prospects and the companies that don't appear to have the most attractive prospects. It's simpler, less expensive, and it enhances our chances of success. You know, it's, it's interesting, Weston, as you go through that, it, it seems very practical, makes a lot of common sense. How come people aren't really hearing about this or, you know, they're you know, hearing from someone who's saying, hey, I've got this great money manager, I've got this person, look at their track record or look at, you know, what they're able to do. And so... Why is it that people aren't hearing about this? Well, that's also just two broad reasons. First, this is a really boring way to invest. It's not the least bit exciting. You're buying basically all the companies, not trying to zero in on what might be the fabulous performer next year. It's kind of like watching grass grow. And for those in the industry who are providing advice, it doesn't seem to provide much for them to do. Most of us think of investment advice as some clever person who can tell us buy this, sell that. And so we're inclined to seek out that kind of advice. But when we study this process rigorously and examine the records of all those analysts and researchers and money managers trying to predict the future, trying to identify the winners, trying to avoid the losers, it turns out that more often than not, we'd be better off just ignoring that advice, or more precisely, not paying extra for that advice, and just buying all the securities to make sure that wherever the winners are in the economy or the markets, we get our fair share. Interesting. So I have a question. So, you know, when people are listening, especially in today's, you know, economic times, you know, because the market since the beginning of the year has been extremely volatile. So, you know, I can just flip on television and whether the market was up 200, down 200, whatever the case may be, you have all of these people, you know, giving their opinion of what they think. How does, you know, today's environment change or does it affect whatsoever anything that you're saying right there? Should we be paying attention to the media at this point? Well, you might want to be paying attention to the media to be an informed citizen, But let's think about it a little bit differently. The job of a reporter is to report the news. The job of a successful investor is to understand the best way to react to news. And the news might be positive, it might be negative. 
in almost every case, it makes very little sense for an investor to react to the news and shuffle around their portfolio of securities one way or another. Because, again, we're in this competitive environment, and all the other investors are trying to do the same thing. So it's a bit like a game of musical chairs. What we're most likely going to do is wind up increasing our costs by trading back and forth and also failing to achieve the market rates of return that are there for the taking by sitting still, staying in our seat, so to speak. We get up and go to the men's room or the popcorn stand at the hockey game, and, gee, the minute we're out of our seats for a minute or two, they score the goal, and you missed it. And that kind of thing happens with distressing frequency for investors. The news gets ugly for a while, prices go down, investors sell stocks or various securities in an effort to reduce their risk, but then markets often have a way of exploding and providing some of the best returns when we least expect it. And so what we find is that on average, investors put the odds in their favor when they follow and maintain a diversified, stick-with-it approach. So if I just stay with that for a second, so when we're seeing all this, you know, going on and the news is, you know, going on about what's occurred, and then all of a sudden you'll hear, you know, what they call this financial guru say, it's different this time. Now, I've been doing this 30-some-odd years, and, you know, Weston, when I introduced you, you're doing it 40-some-odd years. Is it really different every time that they come out and say it's different this time, or has it pretty much been this way for as long as I can remember, as long as you can remember in this industry? Well, in many respects, it's almost always different. And yet in more important respects, it's almost always the same. Collectively, we worry about the future. We've always worried about the future. We always will worry about the future. And what we worry about, the precise events, tend to change over time. I'm old enough to remember when it was... uh, an occasion where many investors were very worried, very anxious about rising oil prices. And now we appear to be worried about just the opposite, falling oil prices. We're always going to be presented with challenges. We're always going to be worried about something. Some of these problems may get solved. Some of these problems may never get solved. But life goes on. And collectively, when we own a diversified portfolio, we are owning a share in businesses in this country and all around the world. And these businesses have a history of rewarding investors for the capital they supply. So, Weston, as you say something like that, you know, I've always explained to people it's kind of like the survival of the fittest. And instead of trying to pick out an individual company or individual companies, what you're saying is, is why don't we just pretty much own and hold on to all of the winners instead of trying to pick or all of the companies rather than trying to pick and choose. Let me give an example that maybe illustrate that a little more concretely. I'm a history major. I kind of like a long-term perspective on things. The Dow Jones Industrial Average was first introduced back in 1896. So at year-end 1896, the Dow Jones Average was computed to be just over 40 Fast forward 119 years to the end of 2015. We still have the Dow Jones Industrial Average, but only one of the original constituents 
General Electric is still there in its original form as a company. All the others either disappeared or they were merged away into some other entity. Over the decades, many companies have come and gone from the Dow Jones Industrial Average, and as the economy grew and changed, the list changed over time. He was just stuck with it. That level of 40 from 1896 grew to over 17,000 by year-end 2015. And if we reinvested our dividends all along the way, that 17,000 today is something more like 900,000. But there was plenty of volatility over that period. There were 28 times that the Dow average dropped by 20% or more. And there were eight of those where the Dow dropped 40% or more. But by having a collection of securities that reflected the growth and change of the American economy, you earned a significant reward, again, by providing capital to businesses that need that capital to grow. And if you were willing to tolerate the risk, the very real risk, then you were, I would argue, generously rewarded for bearing that risk. This doesn't mean that stocks are an appropriate investment for everybody, but I believe that almost every investor should have some portion of their portfolio in stocks, maybe only a little, perhaps a lot. That depends on their tolerance for risk and having a financial advisor who can help you sort through that tolerance for risk can be a very useful exercise. That's a great perspective. You know, it's interesting is when you said that about that Dow and you took those 30 and you went back, you know, to 1896. You know, the interesting thing is, is someone who just bought just the individual stocks themselves versus someone who bought a portfolio of those stocks where someone was watching it and always maintaining that top 30. That appears to me that it may have made a big difference also, which is I didn't have the 30 that went, you know, the 29 that went out. But I actually had a portfolio that was being updated and retained by the, the winners of that 30. Right. Do I understand that correctly? Well, I think when they, if you look at the, the, the leading companies of almost any decade, uh, they change over time. And we go through cycles where you know, big railroad firms or steel companies are the giants of their era. And today we have technology companies, and I can't even explain what they do to my mother but they're some of the largest companies in America, and some of them in the great scheme of things are, are relatively recent. But that's the nature of a, a free market economy is that we don't really know where the next innovation will come from or how it will change or how big it will get. And so by having a diversified portfolio, we make sure that wherever the biggest, most rewarding opportunities happen to be, we're going to get our fair share. Great point. So, you know, when I listen to you a little bit, you know, here also, Weston, one of the things that I, you know, jot in my notes is if you were to just say core principles that someone be sh that someone should be following to be a successful investor today, what would be some of the core principles that you would suggest to them? I think one of the most important things is a certain perspective that many investors struggle to accept. This is the idea that the capital markets are not your adversary. They're not something you need to outwit. You need to think of the capital markets as your partner. Let them work for you. 
but understand how they work and why they work. Understand that markets have a history throughout the world of rewarding investors for the capital they supply to business ventures, but understand that in a properly functioning market, prices are likely to be volatile, sometimes very volatile. It's not a sign that the system is broken. It's a sign that prices are responding in a way that reflects investor uncertainty. And since the world is always an uncertain place, we should always expect to have a certain degree of volatility. It isn't a sign, again, that things are wrong. It's a sign that the world is uncertain and the best investors learn how to respond to that volatility, not by dipping and darting, jumping in and out, but by having an appropriate portfolio that allows them to sleep at night regardless of what the news events look like. That's a great insight. So for all of our listeners today, you've been listening to Discovering Responsible Wealth. Our guest today was Weston Wellington, Vice President of Dimensional Funds. Weston, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been a pleasure to have you on our show, and you have great insights. And this has been Frank Congelos, your host. Everybody have a great month. We look forward to following up with you next month. And thank you, Frank. Advisors of the Institute of Responsible Wealth may be licensed for investment and insurance products. The Institute of Responsible Wealth is an educational division of CNA Financial Group. CNA Financial Group and its advisors are an agency or an agent of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, New York, New York. Securities products and advisory services offered through Park Avenue Securities, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC. Park Avenue Securities is an indirect, wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. The Institute of Responsible Wealth and CNA Financial Group are not affiliates or subsidiaries of Park Avenue Securities or Guardian.